Hi, I'm Richard Burnaby, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Lens, where I speak with some of the most interesting and inspiring people in the world about photography, the arts, travel, conservation, entrepreneurship, and creative culture. First, I wanted to share a powerful quote that's been bouncing around my head for the past two weeks or so from famed film director Martin Scorsese. Now, he probably meant this for aspiring filmmakers and directors, but it equally applies to photographers, writers, musicians, painters, artists of all types. And here's the quote. Your job is to get your audience to care about your obsessions. Let me repeat. Your job is to get your audience to care about your obsessions. Every word in this quote is important, but I want to focus on two words in particular. The first word is obsessions. You need to have obsessions in your life. Healthy ones, of course. And these are the things that you're insanely passionate about. The first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning, aside from coffee, maybe. And the last thing before you go to sleep, what are you dreaming about during your idle thoughts? How do you spend your free time? Or better yet, how would you like to be spending it? Your insanely passionate obsessions are what you want to share with the world and what are uniquely yours to share. They represent the unique you, which leads me to the second word, your, your obsessions, not someone else's. And in this day and age, the internet and social media, not your followers or your fans either. You see, that's the trap. The seduction of likes and approval from the crowd, the applause, the adulation. Hey, it's human nature to want to be liked and accepted, but it's a bad drug for the artist. Create to please yourself. Create what's meaningful to you, not what may or may not be meaningful to others. And that's not being selfish, by the way. That's selfless. Giving and sharing what's meaningful and important to you is one of the most selfless things you can do. I'd rather create something meaningful to me that 10% of my audience insanely loves, but might be repulsive to the other 90% than something that I was ambivalent about, but pleased everyone. Passion beats ambivalence every damn time. So go create something so powerful, so moving, so compelling, so inspiring that people have to take notice so that your obsessions, your passions become their obsessions and their passions too. Your job is to get your audience to care about your obsessions. And now on to my amazing guest for this episode. He's uh, one of my photography heroes. Mr. Art Wolf joins me today. Art has been a photographer of wildlife, landscapes, and native cultures for more than 40 years, and he's still going stronger than ever. He's published more than 100 books over his career. He's an honorary fellow at the Royal Photographic Society. He's a canon explorer of light, and he's hosted the popular TV series on PBS, Art Wolf's 
travels to the edge. He has two of his photographs featured on U.S. postage stamps. You can keep up with all his latest travels on Twitter, at Art Wolf, and his stunning photography on Instagram, which is also at Art Wolf. Art will be joining me shortly with our compelling conversation right after this short message from Luminar Neo. This episode was brought to you by Luminar Neo. Friends, do I love Luminar Neo. Luminar Neo helps photographers like myself with everything they could possibly need to edit and process photos that look amazing on the screen and in print. Luminar Neo was designed for both hobbyists and pros and includes the most effective AI-powered editing tools and extensions all-in-one intuitive and easy-to-use app. Now, whether you want to show off the finest detail on the fur of your wildlife photo, add a glamorous glow to your portrait shoot, or enhance that beautiful golden hour light in your landscapes, Luminar Neo has everything you need to improve your images naturally. You can use Luminar Neo as a standalone app on your PC or Mac computer, or if you're like me, as a plugin for Adobe Lightroom and Photoshop, so you can keep your existing workflow while having access to powerful editing tools you just can't find anywhere else. I especially love the AI enhancement features, plus the use of layers and masking for localized editing as well. Learn more about Luminar Neo and how it can help you improve your creativity in photo editing by visiting skylum.com. That's S-K-Y-L-U-M.com. Art Wolf, thank you for coming on the podcast. You're more than welcome, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. I was scrolling through your Instagram feed earlier in preparation for this conversation, and right near the top of the feed, so it's recent, there's a photo of you with this enormous grin on your face, and you're holding a Canon 1,200-meter lens. 1,200 millimeters. So I'm assuming this is on loan from Canon. It was, absolutely. And what were you using it for? Yeah, I was up in the Himalayas uh, photographing snow leopards. Yeah, and you know, in the previous incarnation, I used the 1200 on wolves up in the Lamar Valley of Yellowstone. And back then, I believe the lens was somewhere around 35 pounds. So this new lens, which I think has built in a 2X into the lens, is now a seven pound lens. That's an amazing change over the years. What part of the Himalayas? Yeah, well, I was up in Ladakh, the high state of India, and uh, we had spotters going out every morning, and this was in early April. And fortunately, those spotters uh, found cats that had made a kill on a ibex. So there was a male, and then there was a mother who actually made the kill and her cub. But... They were one kilometer away. So can you imagine a animal the size of a large dog one kilometer away? So I never saw the animals that I photographed with my naked eye. And I tried with a 1.4 extender, which what made it something like a 1600. But I found that if I just simply cropped the 1200, I got a better result. That's some scenic uh, landscapes there too. Some high altitude... Buddhist monasteries are beautiful. Yeah. And in fact, I've got a book called 
act of faith that comes out in 2025 that looks at all the uh, world's big religions, but also voodoo and shamanism. And so you can bet I was in those monasteries uh, in and around shooting the snow leopards. And that region is also very similar to Tibet in many ways. Well, in fact, most, yeah, the the people fled ahead of the uh, uh, Chinese troops. I mean, I was living in Tibet in 1984 on Mount Everest up the Northeast Ridge. And back then, Lhasa was a true Tibetan town. And there was a small garrison of Chinese on the outskirts. And now it's a Chinese city. Tibet's lost. And so many of the people that lived on the Tibetan plateau migrated over the mountain passes into Ladakh and their houses and their culture have remained intact. But that's also the area that Chinese is, China is contesting with India. So there's all sorts of troops. If you've been there, you understand there's a lot of military in and around that area. And that trip, that was um, the, the first Western expedition into Tibet when yeah, you went there, right. when they first opened up? Well, what happened is Nixon went in to China and opened up relations, uh, I think in 1980 or thereabouts. And Boeing then started moving in and selling jets to the Chinese. And it was Boeing employees, uh, engineers that were my friends that were climbing buddies. And so they parlayed the whole thing around jets into a permit that allowed us to go up the Northeast Ridge. And it was back in the time that there was no Google Maps. Uh, there was nobody that had, had lived and climbed that route. So we we're kind of climbing blind. I personally got up to 25,000 feet, which is the North Call. And mm-hmm. uh, it was, it, I kind of cut my teeth on uh, photographing at altitude because you live between 16 and 25,000 feet for three months. I lost 45 pounds, came mm-hmm. back emaciated, felt great. Everybody that saw me thought I was dying. Uh, it was a great time, but I wouldn't want to repeat that. I, won't, I don't want to relive that. I did it once. I uh, returned to the Himalayas to go up to K2 years later. Uh, I love the mountains. I did a book called The High Himalaya, and uh, it's always nice to return. But now I'm returning for the cultures, as I indicated earlier. So that question about the 1,200-millimeter lens, I promise that's the only gear question (laughs) I'm going to ask. (laughs) I I know you're not a gear guy. You're not a technical guy. Um, I heard you say once during one of your talks that you only know about 4% of what your camera does. Yeah, yeah. Is that hyperbole or is that really true? Well, I've never measured it, but it is in and around. I mean, I know how to set the ISO, uh, automatic (laughs) uh, balance, and they're all on a special menu. And so format, there's about five things on that thing. And beyond that, I don't get into the all the variations and often you would understand that you can do multiple things through different courses. And so I get it down to where all I need to know is what I got and I keep it simple, which allows me to think really about the subject and the uh, composition around the animal or the culture or the landscape. You don't let the technology and the camera get in the way. That's a more succinct way of saying that. So you're not a technical guy, but you're an artist at heart, aren't you? 
Well, clearly there is a difference between left-handed, right-handed, left-brained, right-brained. I think most of the people that take my seminars or my workshops are pretty much a uh, right-handed, left-brained uh, demographic. And that's what I love to help people with is composition, training the eye to uh, question everything and to really see what's around them. So many people, quote unquote, want to go and get their bucket list image from a viewpoint. And to me, that's a fairly hollow victory. If you've got better equipment, of course, you're get, going to get a better capture 20 years later, but you know, 500,000 photos later from the same viewpoint. So I really hammer home really uh, scrutinizing an environment and coming away with your own original copyright. So where did this come from? Your parents, I know they were both commercial artists or from your education, you have an art degree. You know, it came from um, both parents encouraged me towards the arts. And in fact, I was the third of three. I was the only one that went to a children's school for art. And it was for impoverished families that could not afford putting their kids through art school. That, but then eventually when I went through the University of Washington, I had an instructor by the name of Jacob Lawrence, who arguably is one of America's greatest African-American painters. And he um, really encouraged me to experiment, never to rest on my laurels, never to be overly satisfied. In other words, to keep pushing that carrot slightly beyond your reach so you're always moving forward. And I took that to heart over the last five decades to constantly re-evaluate uh, what I'm shooting and to broaden my perspective. And today, I'm shooting vir virtually everything that I come across, regard you know, not weddings and not graduations, but everything else. And so the latest incarnation is taking people into degraded environments and giving them a fairly strong uh, idea what abstract expressionism was and why not go out and recreate that? And it just broadens people's, and I call it visual vocabulary. And it's fun to really bring people from just being so centric towards that mountain reflected in a mountain lake to really seeing what's around them. And you don't have to be rich to uh, travel in your own city and find engaging images. Yeah, it's, it's funny you say that. Your, your, your work... Your body of work is marked by a variety. I mean, you're a generalist. That's right. Is, is this by design a, like a business decision or a marketing strategy, or are you just curious about a lot of things? You know, I don't have enough range to have a marketing strategy. <laughs> a strategy. <laughs> well, you've been successful. I don't know about that. You know, the thing is that uh, I am compelled to... S surprise my audience. I always want something to come out of left field, something unexpected. That gets me out of bed. I love that challenge. At the same time, I'm broadening, broadening my perspective as well. So I'm always growing as a photographer. And I cite a friend of mine that I tagged along 50 years ago, who was a duck photographer that had all the latest big Canon lenses but after he shot every duck in North America, he ran out of steam and moved on to something else. And I always took that as something I didn't want. I didn't want to be targeted into one very narrow um, 
subject range. And being exposed at college level to art and art history, I've often gone back into art history and looked at the paintings of Impressionists and Abstract Expressionists and everybody else, and then I start to emulate the work that they did, and eventually it becomes my own vision. And so I'm like proactively already always broadening uh, subjects, and that's what keeps me as excited to get out of uh, bed and to shoot five decades later. Five decades. Yeah. You you said um, at one point, quote, "I've lived the life of five hundred people." Do you remember That's saying right. that? Yeah, and it's true. I have seen. I don't have a wife. I don't have a husband. I don't have a cat, dog. But what I've got is a great life. And how I determine that, how I measure that, is I've seen almost every animal that I've always wanted to see in the wild. And it was important for me uh, to see snow leopards and see their behavior rather than camera traps. And I'm not disparaging camera traps. I think Steve Winder has done an amazing job uh, capturing cats uh, that are very difficult to see. Uh, He's done a great job, but that's a different genre. For me, I wanted selfishly to see a cat or a mountain gorilla or a jaguar or, or, or. And so um, I don't even know what question spurred that diatribe. Yeah, <laughs> I have lived a great life because I've been all around the world. There's still a few places I want to see in my lifetime, and they're relegated towards the last quarter of my life. And that is seeing G- Egypt and things like that, Oman. Um, Wildlife-wise, for this last book that I've been working on, Wild Lives, I basically went after animals that I wanted to revisit or see for the first time, and I basically got everything I was after. You practice a lot of pre-visualization, because I've, I've read a lot of your work and I've listened to some lectures you've done. So you imagine and plan many of the images that you're going to make in advance. So how far do you take that? I think most photographers practice pre-visualization to some degree, but do you actually plan out images? Are they in your head? Do you make a list? It really depends on Richard. If, if I'm, well, I mean, the whole body of work called the human canvas was all pre-visualized to the extent that I did little drawings and sketches of everything I was going to do for that body of work. Because if you've got 20 to 30 individuals standing around naked and you're hemming and hawing, (laughs) That one minute seems like a lifetime. So that was completely pre-visualized and orchestrated over a 10-year period. When it comes to shooting animals in the wild, I can't pre-visualize too much because, you know, it's such a variable of circumstances. I'm fairly good at sizing up an environment and knowing where to put the animal within the frame or moving quickly to uh, allow myself to collide, not collide, but to be in the right position when the animal moves through. If they're moving right, for instance, and I see an environment of five minutes away, I'm going to be in that environment and wait for them to walk into it. And then I'm, I'm just very reliant on spontaneity. In fact, the TV show that was Travels the Edge was completely, other than the opening line and the closing line, 
was totally uh, reacting to emerging circumstances. And I do best when it's that way. I do best in a conversation like this one, uh, just reacting to whatever you ask. Where I screw up is when I've got a formal speech and I never have a formal speech. I just talk off the cuff because if I have to follow lines, that's, uh, that is really painful for me. That is really painful, but I like being spontaneous, both in capturing images, but also uh, talking publicly. I've spoken to several students of yours over the years who have attended your workshops, and there are a few common denominators that I was able to extract from their descriptions of the experience. One is they all had an amazing time, and they learned a bunch, and they absolutely love you. Two, uh, no one has as much energy as you. No one. <laughs> and, and it's then, caffeine. <laughs> and three, you're always on the move. You're constantly in motion. Is that, I know that's a workshop, is that how you approach most of your shooting? I mean, you're constantly in motion, or are you one of the sit and wait for the light type photographers? You probably know the answer before asking that. Uh, <laughs> I'm fidgeting. I'm always moving around. Uh, what's the most painful is waiting for something. The only time I really ever waited for a shot was I was up out of Toke Junction, Alaska, uh, at a den site of wolves. I was 40 miles from the nearest human and I was uh, in a tent, small climbing tent covered in moss. So the only light that entered that tent for 48 hours came through my viewfinder. And I was so bored. I had <laughs> um, magazines and every couple of minutes I'd get up and look through the viewfinder at the den opening, which was a submerged uh, den, a hole in the ground. And there was no indica indication when we arrived that there was anything in the den. And so after 24 hours of looking through that uh, viewfinder, I was demoralized. I couldn't wait till the helicopter came in and picked me up. And one of the last times I looked through the viewfinder and there was four wolf pups staring straight into my camera. So it oh. made everything worthwhile. But no, I'm not the kind of photographer that documents a 12-month life cycle of a squirrel. I move, and if something's not happening, I will surely find something over the ridge or down the valley or whatever. I'm just, I move fast, I make fast decisions, and it's really part of my chemical makeup. And so, you know, you know that. I think you understand that. I am yep. definitely not a uh, wait and see kind of guy. So your student's uh, description of you is pretty accurate, huh? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> you've you've spoken a lot about the importance of well i'll just use my words here uh letting go of the literal embracing the abstract yeah it's been kind of my mantra while teaching composition and i've heard you talk about the same although you may have called it something different or used different terminology can you talk you just you touched on it earlier but can you talk about that approach to photographic composition yeah you know uh when i was at college. Uh, it took me seven years at the University of Washington. I got a, a five-year degree in fine art painting and a two-year degree in art education. And during art education, I took a design class and uh, learned about the elements of design. 
And so I talk about that throughout the, when I'm teaching, that these are analogous to red lights. Yeah, we could be walking down the street, having a conversation about politics, but my eyes are always scanning. And when there's a certain pattern or texture or line that's intriguing, it stops me cold to look more closely at it. And it's not that it's a great shot, but those are the kind of visual cues that I'm looking for, even though I may be engaged in a conversation. So those are the starting point. And I really believe my best work is when I, it's the moment of seeing, it's like a transcendent moment when suddenly you realize you're in the middle of the best photo of the moment and you didn't even see it a split second before. And it's training the eye, the imagination, the brain to open up and consider all possibilities because I think all of us get in an emotional, mental state and maybe we're locked into a one to 500 perspective and the best shot is behind you with a wide angle. And the more I try to force that to scrutinize everything around me, consider everything around me, that is when things open up and you're in that moment, that Zen moment of everything's right there. And it's a happy place to be. And I teach now abstract expressionism because you know that was a movement mid-century, last century, that was post-World War II, but it, it was the Jackson Pollocks and the William de Kooning's, Mark Rothko, and all these different photographers they would famously say that their paintings end where your imagination begins. They were non-objective. And the world around us can be non-objective. If people are just locked into photographing wildlife, they miss a lot. And if you're only into landscape, they miss a lot. But if you broaden your perspective, virtually you can come home on any given trip with something that's of value, and it's those ones that I know nobody else has. I mean, as I said earlier, standing on the Grand Canyon or at a lake up in Mount Rainier or, 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 yeah, you could take better shots because we have better equipment, but it's been shot 10,000 times, 100,000 times. So the ones that are of the most value are the ones I've not seen before or of a perspective I've not seen. And that's what I try to convey onto my students. Do you ever get into a creative rut where you find yourself instinctively reaching for the same approaches or the same compositional concepts? You know, I am reliant on the skills and the eyes and the composition of the past. I mean, you've got to have that basis from which you depart your home or on a trip. But I'm so broad in my range now that getting in a rut is not going to happen because everything is a potential shot. And unless you're blind, deaf, and dumb, uh, maybe that's inappropriate to say that at this point in our history. But unless you are totally predisposed thinking about something other than photography, I mean, everything around you is potentially... I like to say to my students, I want to ruin your lives. I want you never to walk past a dumpster, an old chipped wall, without re-looking at it and reconsidering it. Yeah, and the other thing I say to my students is, 
the best thing that could ever happen is for a stranger to walk up to you and ask what you're shooting. Because if they know exactly what you're shooting, maybe it's been done a lot and they've seen it a lot, but it's the best thing they could ask is totally uh, confused as to what you're looking at and framing. Right, because I think too many photographers um, just consider what the literal subject is instead of you know, the abstract shapes and lines and patterns and how they relate to each other, um, looking abstractly. Yeah, that's exactly right, Richard. And I think so many people that have come into photography have entered it, obviously, through the digital age. And they may be really geeks that love technology, and then they, they've got books of mine and yours and anybody else's, and they see that and they want that. And that's good. I, I tell people when I'm teaching abstract expressionism, I'm not trying to dissuade you from shooting the grand landscapes. I've done two complete books just on world landscapes that are all inspiring. And it makes me get goosebumps when it's a miraculous lit subject. So I'm not trying to say don't shoot that. But in addition, consider this, 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 and that and broaden your perspective. Do you ever consider in advance the potential commercial success of an image? Has it ever influenced how you capture a scene or a subject? Only once. I photographed a white stallion with a black background. I used a, a, a leaf blower to blow its mane straight up, and it's very graphic. Spirit horse. I actually... Uh, it. It was, yeah, Spirit Horse. And Spirit Horse. I knew, I knew that would uh, sell. And so that's the only one I really can think of that I ever actually created the image to make money. Otherwise, I am lucky enough that whatever I shoot, especially back, back, unfortunately, in the day of stock sales, a lot of my photos lent themselves to stock simply because graphically they were clean and simple. Um, but I never went out to shoot stock. And I can remember the agency often said, oh, well, mauve is the color of the month. Go out and shoot. <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to do that. That's, you know, I'm not going to follow a list of somebody else's ideas. I'm going to shoot what I'm interested in. And if it, in fact, makes money, fine. But yeah, no, it's always been about a project. Oh, I'm project driven. I used to work for Smithsonian, Natural History, Audubon, National Geographic. And that was really good discipline because you had to come in on time and fulfill an idea of a story. But honestly, books were the things that really engaged me. And that is directly connected to the fine art background. You know, a magazine gets a lot of exposure for a month and then it's gone, where a book has theoretically, one or two, and it was successful several years uh, being in front of a broader range of people. So we talked about composition. What role do emotions, like as an artist, or your emotional reaction to a scene or an event have on your image making, if any? I think it's 100%. I think I react on a gut level about the emotional response to a subject keeping in mind that whatever I am doing, I'm shooting for an audience. It's why cooks cook for their uh, fans and writers write and dancers dance. Photographers shoot for an audience. And I always want to have my work 
regardless if it's a degraded environment, I'm trying to make it as beautiful as possible. If it's a landscape, I want that awe-inspiring feeling that I just felt conveyed onto them. Wildlife, all uh, people, I have my uh, subjects often look straight into the camera and therefore straight into your own soul. So it's that gut emotional response, which leads me to a photo with the intent of connecting that to the people that ultimately look at the image. So it's 100%. 100%. And it's apparent that you've been influenced by your, by your education by, by, by classical painters. And I'm noticing your work, and you've mentioned it earlier. So I wanted to name a few painters, and perhaps you can describe how they influenced your work in some way. Are you game? If at all, right? <laughs> if at Because I'm not going to know every painter. You oh, you'll know, you know these three, I promise. Okay. The first one is a very well-known Impressionist painter, Claude Monet. Yeah. Claude is the painter. I use him a lot in my lectures, A, to tell the people that he lived late into his 80s. Possibly, I forget when he died, but it was late 80s or early 90s, and he lived at a time where the average man was dying around 48. And so I say, what's that tell you about passion and creativity? So that's one thing. Jacob Lawrence asked me to find a painter and emulate their work for a while. And basically that's what, that's the trick I teach is emulating the works of other painters. But I used Claude to understand his very impressionist and he was very impressionistic simply because his eyesight was so bad he only saw towards the end of his life colors and shapes but not a lot of detail and so I started emulating that out of college with longer exposures blurred motion and that ultimately became one of my first books called rhythms from the wild I could see so Claude is very much an inspiration for me and in fact so much so that either next year or the year after, I'm going to do a workshop in uh, France where we'll uh, go to museums in Paris, we'll walk the Latin Quarter, and then we'll go out to his lily pond uh, place uh, hour out of Paris and try to emulate his work. So that I'm looking forward to. I've never been there, and I would like to see it myself. I could see his influence in a lot of your intimate landscape work. Um, I think you even have one of, the, of some leaves that are in motion on the surface of a water. Yes. Yeah. All right. So who is George Surratt and how did he influence your work? Yeah. Uh, George is a pointillist and that means that he would build his canvases with tiny points of color. Often complementary colors were around each other. So red and green, yellow and blue, orange and purple would be populating a lot of his canvases. And so I thought... You know, I've been teaching early on. I got out of college and started teaching right from the get-go. And I often would be talking about leading lines and horizons, where to place it, and blah, 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 blah. But with Seurat and pointillism, I took that on as a style. So I was looking, and in fact, I just taught a workshop in Asheville, uh, North Carolina, a couple of weeks ago, where the uh, budding... Uh, flowering trees were just little dots of white in an otherwise green environment. And I said, this is perfect pointillism. And so no leading lines, no horizons. It's just a flat uh, composition of points of color. And so again, by honoring George Seurat, 
it became first trying to uh, emulate the work and then it became part of what I see. And so it was like a proactive way of broadening my perspective. And maybe the least known of the three here, but still influential, MC Escher. Escher got me in trouble. <laughs> that was, uh, Escher was this brilliant Dutch artist that lived in the late 1800s. And he had such a uh, creative mind that he would take a subject, which we'll call positive, and the space around that subject would be yet another subject. And often he used just black and white illustrations, but patterns were his thing. And eventually, and I know you know the story, I mm -hmm. did a book called Migrations. And I said in the introduction, because this book is inspired by the work of an artist, I am now using digital illustration in the book. And it was at a time when we were still shooting film, but we had the ability to scan that film and change content. And so if there was a flock of birds facing one way, but one was facing the opposite, I would just reverse it. And uh, people wanted to know exactly everything. And I understand that in retrospect, but we thought we're going to create the term digital illustration. It should be obvious that it's what it is. We talked about that in the introduction, but our uh, harshest critics said nobody reads. So <laughs> I was like, oh, the onus was on me then to explain that. And if I followed their lead and their criticism, it would have been a how-to book rather than an art book. Uh, out of 100 illustrations, there was only 30 that had some minor work and then a couple, including the cover, uh, were a little more robust, you know. Uh, but virtually every criticism of the book that was in print got it wrong. And so here, the Atlantic Monthly or half a dozen newspapers that were skewering me were using yellow journalism. They were making up their own beliefs without interviewing, interviewing me, and they got it wrong. And so it was the word hypocrisy really was the uh, term that I kept coming back to uh, when this was like a lightning rod on a world scale, knowing also full well that many of my colleagues had already used the technology, but they declined to mention it. So I was kind of out there in the wind capturing all the lightning strikes. But, you know, it, people forget the controversy for the most part, or they got it wrong. But at the time, I was stressed at it because my office really talked long and hard about how to introduce it. It wasn't just a random, oh, let's just roll this one out. We talked about it. And it was a painful experience, quite honestly, because people were leaving uh, nasty phone messages on our recorder. We were being attacked left and right. And yet that book won international design awards. So never was the, such a clarity between art and science. And uh, honestly, there were well-deserved criticisms of me because I had cultivated an audience on just straight nature for the most part, although I had already done a book on cultures, but people weren't quite ready for that. And there's always going to be a knee-jerk reaction to, uh, and it was true with uh, painters. When photography first emerged in the late 1830s, people said, oh, that's the end of painting as we know it. 
when black and white gave way to color, that's the end of black and white as we know it. And so on and on with digital, that's the end of, you know, and I think that there's validity in that because it's a jagged line in the sand. You know, today we upload our images and post uh, process them and you can lighten up an area or darken it and is that wrong? Is that manipulation, as people like to say, or is that being smart with a digital capture? You know, Galen Rao, who I credit for being a great photographer on behalf of uh, nature and uh, adventure, picked a fight with me over this. And yet, when that fight was no longer newsworthy, he embraced uh, digital illustration, uh, digital manipulation, if you will, I never use the word manipulation. I don't like honestly. that. I don't. It's, I don't use that word. It's, no, it's... because it's inherently negative and judgmental. But at any rate, he and a lot of people use it. It's a jagged line of sand. You know, I don't drop skies in that weren't shot there. I'm not removing huge buildings, uh, as one of our famous colleagues has done. Uh, you know, it, I will absolutely unequivocally remove a pop can that's in the foreground, or I'll pick it up if I didn't see it before the shot. But, you know, again, everybody has their line. Well, that was that was child pl child's play compared to what's being done now, as you mentioned. And yeah. Well, and, and just to close that thought, I don't want, and that was the fear of uh, migrations, I don't want people to have that awe-inspiring moment looking into a photo of mine only to realize it was the sky was Australian, you know, the water was from here. I don't ever want to experience that letdown. And I felt like, and later we did a, a book on migrations. It was reprinted and uh, there were no illustrations whatsoever, I believe. Or we made it more clear which ones were which, uh, just addressing people's angst. But, you know, in the other books I've done in my career, I really haven't played with the honesty, the inherent moment of the picture to the degree that anybody would have a, a real issue. And if they do, I think that they're probably way more pure than I am and they don't want to touch an image in any way, shape or form. But people, regardless if they're photojournalists or not, they change the reality of a situation depending on their perspective, what they include in their image or not. Back in the day of film, it, the color of film would change depending on what film you use. So, uh, you know, photography has rarely been a honest uh, presentation of what's in front of you, unless you were blindfolded, twisted around, and somebody put a 50 millimeter lens on your camera and said, shoot in the dark. Whatever you're shooting probably is the closest to real that you can get. Right. Just a lens choice is a form of editing, right? Yeah, you know, you're seeing you're seeing this 300, 180 degree scene in front of you, and you're narrowing it down to something that you're choosing to show, and you're choosing what not to show. That's a form of editing, right? So let me just kind of follow that along down the path. You you mentioned about how you know, when photography came along, painters thought they would be out of a job, and that painting would fall by the wayside, and obviously it didn't. And then color and black and white and then Photoshop and digital. That was the end of photography because we wouldn't know what was real, what wasn't. And now we're faced with this AI. 
and generative AI and image generating AI. And I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. I mean, do you think, what do you think about the technology? How you think it might affect um, photography in the future? I think it will uh, lead to more clear identification of images or book projects or whatever it may be that are totally real because it is a scary proposition, especially, especially from a political point of view. We're going to see Russians or North Koreans or whatever it emulates some politician saying something inappropriate that could undermine his or her campaign. And that, we're right there. We're already right they're, there. They're there now. Uh, and that is really scary. But what's also scary is the creativity of writers uh, are in jeopardy. The creativity of photographers are in jeopardy. Unless we develop clear guidelines about what is untouched and real versus what is manufactured. And I see that coming. And so... Just because we can doesn't mean we should. And I think it's already out of the box. Uh, I think politicians are trying to catch up, as we've seen in recent days. Uh, but it is really a scary, because I want to know if I'm looking at an image or hearing the voice of somebody that they literally uttered that. And political campaigns can swing and die on that very point. And um, yeah, it's, it's really in our face and for creative types like you and I, I think we're going to have to be really diligent on claiming that un, untouched ground. You know, having said what I said about uh, manipulating, oh God, now I've said that word three <laughs> times. I think we have to hold the line and say this body of work from us or yours is what people believe to be real and that's what we're going to hand, uh, hang our hat on. And speaking of technology, not all of it's bad because we have some software now that can do amazing things with their images um, compared to what you were probably working with, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So I was just wondering, and you have some classic images that go back decades um, that have graced the cover of books and magazines. And then when you consider the rapid advancements of the software and new processing technology, are you ever tempted to go back? and improve on them or you just leave them alone as they are? That's such a salient question because um, with this book that's coming out this fall, we looked back at some of my, um, well, personal favorites of mine, mm -hmm. and we put them through software. We put them through digital uh, noise reduction. We scanned the images and then worked on them. And it sounds like a shampoo commercial, but we revitalize the images. And it's great to see that. It's, it's lovely to see that happen. And along those same lines, I went through files of slides and found some photos that were appropriate for this latest book. And we scanned them. And think about an image that's been sitting in the files for 35 years, never seen the light of day. And suddenly you see it, you pull it, you scan it and then you lighten or darken or sharpen something and suddenly it's there. And I don't see anything wrong with that. There's nothing deceptive about that. Not it's only smart business Yes. because uh, we've went through a lot of effort to get that image. And if we can make it more contemporary, why not? I don't see any um, 
issues with that at all. No, it's one example of technology for good, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you do your own processing of images? Yeah, I like for instance, if I just came back from Africa and I was on an 11-day trip, I'll probably have shot in excess of 10,000 images. But by the time I land back here in Seattle, there could be 700 or 900 images that every one I've worked on and all the rest I've deleted because it's not that I shot a thousand bad images, but I have redundancy and invariably and always one or two images, that slight motion difference in an animal or a culture or an expression on a face, it's going to be the better one. I don't need 30 of those because it just bogs down our storage system. And so I delete them and nobody in my office really wants to take that on. And though I teach using Lightroom. I'm not the best in the world at Lightroom, but I get to the point really fast. So I'll make color adjustments. I'll, if I have to crop, and occasionally you do, like for instance, those uh, leopards up in the Himalayas, I had to crop to a third of the frame just to make the cat noticeable. Uh, so I'll do that. Nobody in my office wants that responsibility, and I, I, I embrace it, and I love it. I never thought I would become such a computer person, but in fact, it distracts me on a long flight over the Atlantic back to Seattle. So I love it. I absolutely love working on images. So while you were working on your Living Wild book, which is on my bookshelf behind me, by the way, in Nepal, you had an incident with a rhino up close and personal. You want to share that short story kind of quick? Yeah. I mean, uh, Gabriel Jacan, who's here now in Seattle and teaching with me, he's been working with me side by side for 29 years. He and I, in probably 1995 or four, uh, late 90s, we were doing the book, The Living Wild, that would come out in 2000. And I wanted the largest rhino in the world from a different perspective than being on an elephant back looking down on this, the largest rhino in the world. We went out into the forest and found a patch of grass, elephant grass, it's very tall. And from a viewing platform accessed by a road on the other side, we climbed the platform and saw the backs of two rhinos near the only tree in the grassy marsh. And so we followed the path out to that tree. And by the time we got there, the rhinos had kind of moved off, but I could see bits and pieces of them through the tall grass. I told the two walking guides uh, that I will move a little closer and get a picture. I, don't th I didn't think at the time they even spoke English, but they saw something that I didn't see at the moment I took the first pictures, the rhinos just froze. And a split second later, they were in full charge. And the uh, guides yelled, get back now, and back meant to the tree. And the tr type of tree was the only thing that really honestly saved our lives. It was a kapok tree, which is in the banyan fig tree. They have buttress roots above the ground. And we were jumping over these roots that spiraled out from the base of the tree, probably 30 or 40 feet. But these rhinos were right at where we were, but they couldn't get to us because of the height wow. of the roots. 
which were about four or five feet off the ground. So they're goring, they're trying to nail us with their horns on both sides of the tree. We have two guys with walking sticks clobbering them on the head, and I'm stuck with a telephoto lens. I, uh, at that moment, you're not thinking, where's my wide angle? Because that would have made an amazing yeah. shot. But it was so fast and so um, frightening that we just cowered. And that was a badge of stupidity, not honor, that I did not understand that Royal Chitwa National Park was at once the hunting grounds for the king of Nepal. And those rhinos have that memory that they pass down from generation to generation. So humans on foot have to be eradicated. If you're on elephant back, they only see an elephant. They don't make the process of humans. And so that was a big mistake on our part. We didn't know the history of the park. And 18 to 20 people a year are uh, clobbered by these rhinos. Many are killed, and they're largely villagers that sneak into the forest to cut fire. So it's safe to say that if it were a different species of tree, you might not be here today. Uh, you'll be interviewing somebody else. That's correct. <laughs> well, tell us about your new wildlife photography book you have coming out this fall. Um, I think we just you gave it a name, Wild Lives. Well, yeah, and it's uh, in debate with my publisher right now. I originally pitched the idea as wild, but the more I saw that as a title everywhere, I thought maybe we need to rethink that, and I came up with the idea of Wild Lives, which I have not seen very often, if at all. And it's a look at uh, international wildlife during a, well, the Anthropocene, the age of man, and how animals are either thriving or declining based on climate change and increased human presence. And wherever animals are uh, habituated towards humans, they tend to be doing very well. They're uh, breeding in the wild in close proximity to humans. And I, I cite mountain lions, for example. There's more mountain lions in North America now than there has yeah. been in 200 years. So they're living on the outskirts of major cities. They're almost invisible to us, but they're there, and they're breeding, and uh, the numbers are there. And other animals like mountain gorillas are increasing by 10% a year. Tigers are increasing by around 10% a year. There's more whales in the ocean than there has been since 1950. So I want to give nuggets of hope to people that are inundated with the latest mass shooting, the terrible politics, the bad news on the raising temperatures and all of that. There are still things that we should celebrate and cling to to motivate and encourage people to support the environment movement. As Sylvia Earle, I had dinner with her at a fundraiser a couple of days ago. Sylvia Earle, as you may know, is one of the world's foremost oceanographers. And she says, we're really at the cusp of making a difference or losing the whole thing. As somebody else said, the tipping point. And there are good in NGOs that are looking at energy alternatives. There's a lot of good things happening, but if it bleeds, it leads, and we don't necessarily hear it on the nightly news. So I want to have a book that's honest, that doesn't uh, dodge the fact that we're losing biodiversity in fragile environments, but we also have identified species and come to uh, protect them. And, you know, I look out my uh, 
bedroom window and I see bald eagles probably flying right past me 10 times a day. They're nesting in a nearby park. And when I was a boy here in Seattle, I never yeah. saw a bald eagle until I was in my 20s. So we can't be complacent, but it is good to yeah. have uh, positive news, right? It, well, it encourages people. If everything is negative, people just feel frustrated. They can't do anything. But in fact, people can do a lot. And um, humans are ten tenacious. And uh, that's what you cling to. You offer hope. And the classes that I teach, and I presume you teach, we leave people with hope creativity and if they're happier people the people around them become happier and you kind of build a wall based at one stone sure. at so a I time. I know many of you listening will want to get your hands on this book when it comes out. Art, what's the best way for listeners to keep in touch with you so they know when the book is available? Well, what we're going to do and I'll, I'm going to come back to you Richard is I've been shooting videos uh, on location including the Himalayas and we're going to offer uh, this book, and we're, there's two versions. There's the trade edition, and then there's the luxurious edition. The luxe edition, as we're calling, I'm publishing. It's going to have uh, at least 100 more photos in it. It's going to be in a uh, really nice clamshell box with a vellum pa paper. It's going to be limited edition, but we're offering a print at the same time and the collective is around $499 but the print alone is worth that. Uh, the trade edition, the one you would find on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your neighborhood bookstore, it's coming in around $99. You know, fine paper. If people knew of the book Earth is My Witness, it's right along the same lines of really brilliant printing and quality paper. Uh, so. I'm going to come back to you, Richard, in a month or so and ask if you would run these uh, videos on your blog. And for every book that comes through you, we would uh, provide $50, which you can donate to uh, or an organization that you support or a foundation at your discretion. And so I think the uh, kickback, we call it, to people like you is worthwhile. And uh, you have an audience probably larger than I do, and we want to get and the I word out. do that with pleasure. And I'm assuming also they can go to your website, artwolf.com, and subscribe to your newsletter, and you'll be giving updates there as well. Absolutely. So this book comes out uh, third quarter of October, and uh, I'm proud of it. I mean, it's I got um, recertified for scuba and got all the, you know, the tropical fish and the coral reefs down in Indonesia – uh, the blue whale is there, you know, it's, 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 uh, I'm proud of the book. Let's just say that. So guys, you can go to his website, artwolf.com, subscribe to his newsletter so you can keep up to date with the publishing date and where you can get it. You can follow art on Instagram at artwolf and on Twitter at artwolf and the book will be here soon. Yeah. I'm <laughs> on to the always. next great thing, which is, uh. You know, I had, uh, I had a publisher who was uh, Random House in New York City, and he was a very bitty little skinny man, and he was well into his late 80s when I first met him, and we did about nine books together, 
And he, would, and he was a gay man that lived on Fire Island, and he would take the train into Manhattan every day. And I have to respect Random House. They never retired him. He died on the job in his mid to late 90s. But he would always say, Art, what's our next book? And I ne then realized that he was using me to keep him alive. And that's the attitude I have, that as long as you've got a book in progress that gets you out of bed, there's something to look forward to. And that's by intent, not just randomness. I uh, always believe that, to always have something. And creative types um, that are creating photography have a passion. And honestly, it keeps us alive longer. Just one last question. How many books do you have? I've, I've seen 100, 120. I have no idea. I don't. It's over I don't notch my bedposts with, uh, <laughs> I don't know how many countries I've been to. I don't know how many days I'm on the road. I just, my brain doesn't work along those lines. But it's over 100. But, oh, I think so. Yeah. Probably including foreign imprints and children's books and all of that. But, yeah, I don't know. Amazing. The staff knows. Amazing career. Amazing career. Art. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been an absolute my pleasure. My pleasure. And, uh, yeah, just let's stay in touch about this new book. And I'd be happy okay. to help you uh, promote it. would love to. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Beyond the Lens with me, Richard Burnaby. Thanks to Art Wolf for an enlightening conversation. And thanks to you, of course, for listening. Tweet me at Burnaby Photo with any comments or feedback. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, rating on Spotify, or wherever you regularly listen to your podcasts. I'd love to hear what you think about the show and what you'd like to see from Beyond the Lens in the future. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, beyondthelens.fm. Here's to truth, adventure, and passion. See you next time. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Thank you.